Hi, everybody. It's the Sun Also Rises radio show here on KPCG-FM. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and we'll start the episode today with a story that takes place in the United States in 1969. This was at a time when racial tensions were soaring in America. I'd like to read a little bit to you here about this year from the memoirs of Richard Nixon. He was president in 1969, and when I read this part of his memoirs, I was shocked to learn just how serious the racial tensions were at that time. He writes, quote, From January 1969 through April of 1970, there were, by conservative count, over 40,000 bombings, attempted bombings, and bomb threats. That's an average of over 80 a day. 43 people were killed, end quote. So that's just a stunning number of attacks, an average of 80 per day happening in the U.S., and 43 people killed in just over a year's time. And much of that was over racial tensions. And Nixon writes that besides all the lives lost, the total cost of all the property damage was $21 million dollars. So that amount is in 1969 dollars. And if you adjust it for inflation, it would be a cost of more than 150 million dollars in 2020. So this was no small amount of unrest and destruction. And at this time, segregation between races was no longer law of the land in the U.S., but black Americans were still not embraced as equals, especially in certain aspects of public life. And this was part of the reason why there was so much tension. The official law said segregation is over, but in practice, it was still very much alive. One of the areas where segregation lived on was in community swimming pools. In pools across the country, black people were often blocked out. And so pools, even though they're supposed to be places for recreation and relaxation, They were often flashpoints for conflict. In fact, earlier in the 1960s, the Associated Press wrote an article about a clash that broke out in Biloxi, Mississippi, because black people were trying to swim in a pool, as the law said they could very well do, and whites were trying to block them out. And the AP described it as, quote, the worst racial riot in Mississippi history involving gunfire, stonings, and street clashes, end quote. In another incident that made the front page of the New York Times on June 19th of 1964, black and white people were swimming together in a hotel swimming pool. These were protesters trying to end segregation, and a hotel manager was trying to get them out, and he dumped a lot of muriatic acid a powerful cleaning agent, into the water right beside these people. Today, trouble under a noon sun. Negroes and white rabbis marched to a segregated hotel with these results. Manager James Drott told them to get off his private property, tossed uh, cleaning chemicals inside the pool in an effort to get the Negroes to leave. So swimming pools were a real flashpoint. And it was just at this time and in this atmosphere that a man named Fred Rogers performed a simple but significant scene on his television show. His show was called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, featuring the usually cardigan-clad Fred Rogers. 
It was a children's show, but it was labeled by PBS as appropriate for all ages. And it really aimed to be more about education than entertainment. More about teaching people to become neighborly, as the show title says, and teaching them to become, you know, creative and resourceful and compassionate, polite, even industrious and dependable, all sorts of things like that. So by most anyone's metric, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was a wholesome show that would have been a positive influence on its viewers. And on an episode that aired on May 9th of 1969, just at this time when racial tensions were soaring so high, often specifically at swimming pools, it was at this time that Mr. Rogers had a black man come on the show. This man was an actor named Francois Clemens, and he played a police officer on the show for a number of years, an officer named Officer Clemens, so using his real-life last name there. And that in itself was quite a statement, because Clemens was one of the first black people, if not the first, that I was able to find uh, to have a regular role on a kids' TV show in the U.S. But on this particular episode, Mr. Rogers, who is white... Uh, if you're unfamiliar with him. But he's, he's sitting beside a small plastic children's pool with his feet just soaking in the water when Officer Clemens appears. And here's a clip from this episode. Hi, Officer Clemens. Come Hello, in. Mr. Rogers, how are you? Fine. Won't you sit down? Oh, sure. Just for a moment. It's so warm. I was just uh, putting some water on my feet. Oh, it sure is. Would you like to join me? That looks awfully enjoyable, but... I don't have a towel or anything. Oh, you share mine. Okay. Sure. Oh, Come along. Man. I'll put some more water in here. Oh. This is going to turn into a beautiful day. You like bare feet? Well, yeah. As I grew older, I liked it more and more. So they're just chatting there casually while they soak their feet, just talking to each other as friends do. And then Mr. Rogers loans Officer Clemens his towel to dry his feet off. And Mr. Rogers goes on to use that same towel to dry his own feet off. And this may all seem fairly mundane, but when you consider the atmosphere at that time, you see that this was actually a pretty loud statement that Mr. Rogers was making here. It was a statement without using any words. He was showing his viewers, mostly children, that there's no place for racism with pools or anything else. And Francois Clemens later said that from what he could tell in his own life, from interactions with people in the months and the years that followed that episode, this event did make a significant difference. Many people, as I've traveled around the country, share with me what that particular moment meant to them because he was telling them you cannot be a racist. And one guy, or more than that, but one particular, I'll never forget, said to me, when that program came on, we were actually discussing the fact that black people were inferior. And Mr. Rogers cut right through it, he said. And he said, essentially, that scene ended that argument. That was from an interview that Clemens gave to the public radio outlet WBUR in May of 2020. And that shows that Mr. Rogers' example did make a real difference, at least with some people. And then there's also kind of an epilogue to this story, because 24 years after that 1969 episode, 
Rogers and Clemens recreated that swimming pool scene on the show once again. This was in, I believe, in 1993. And that second time, Mr. Rogers didn't just let Clemens use his same towel. He actually went a step further and helped to dry Clemens' feet after he was getting out of the pool. Now, Mr. Rogers was religious. He was actually ordained as a minister in the Presbyterian Church, but he never preached on his show. There was never open religious talk of any kind. Instead, he demonstrated the values he believed in. There's an old English proverb that says, a good example is the best sermon. And Mr. Rogers seemed to really understand that. He was a master of showing the way to live that he thought was right. And of course, he didn't understand the truth of God, but he seems to have been humble and sincere and to have really valued what he did understand. And he conveyed that to his audience in a humble way. He taught it with his example. And back in 1969, his simple act of friendship and humility really preached volumes and it made a difference. Our next segment begins at the bottom of an obscure hill in Cuba on July 1st of 1898. This was in the middle of the Spanish-American War, and there was a lot at stake in this conflict. It would actually be a major factor determining how much power Spain and America would each have in the Western Hemisphere and beyond. This short war had the potential to close the book on Spain's time as a global power and to set the U.S. up to be an empire in the making with far-flung holdings and influence. So Cuba had become a major flashpoint in this war. The Cubans wanted to join the growing list of Latin American countries that were getting free of Spanish rule. And the Americans wanted to help them win that freedom partly because the U.S. knew that that would open things up for America to exert more dominance in the area and beyond. So the soldiers involved on both sides really understood that a great deal was at stake. And on the day in question, July 1st of 1898, American military forces were hunkered down in the tall grass at the base of this obscure hill called Kettle Hill on the southern coast of Cuba. And the Spanish forces that they were at war against were well-established in trenches at the top of this hill. Spanish troops were also in place on the next hill over, called San Juan Hill. Together, these two hills, Kettle and San Juan, are called the San Juan Heights. And being in control of the San Juan Heights was incredibly important. From the hilltops, artillerymen were able to draw beads on Santiago Harbor and, you know, protect their own naval forces in the harbor or drive the other side's forces out of the area. So it was a vital location, and the Spanish understood this, and they had their positions on the top of the hill heavily fortified. They knew that if the Americans were able to take these hills, they would essentially lose Cuba and suffer major casualties, most likely, as they fled. 
The Spanish soldiers in the trenches on these hilltops were armed with 7mm Mauser M1893 rifles. Those are repeating bolt-action rifles, and they used smokeless powder, so that made it hard to see where exactly the shooters were. Some of them also had Maxim machine guns, and then Spain also had artillery units up on the heights, which were armed with rapid-fire breech-loading cannons. Very powerful weapons, and again, these used smokeless gunpowder. So that was the situation at the top of Kettle Hill. But at the base were the Americans, and one of these was Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt was 39 years old at this time, and he had already lived an extraordinary life up to this point. He had been a sickly child that basically fought his way to health with physical exertion and willpower. He had graduated from Harvard University and had been a successful war historian. Roosevelt had also been a cowboy in the Badlands of North Dakota. He had been a police commissioner of New York City as well, and when the Spanish-American War broke out, he was the assistant secretary of the Navy. But after the war erupted, he was determined to see battle. So Roosevelt resigned as Navy secretary, and he established the 1st U.S. Volunteer Cavalry Regiment. This group came to be better known by its nickname, the Rough Riders. And it truly was a diverse group of volunteer soldiers. There were Ivy Leaguers, such as Roosevelt himself. There were also professional athletes, including the famous football quarterback Dudley Dean, and also the tennis champion, Bob Rin. There were cowboys from Oklahoma and New Mexico, and there were also Indians, mostly from the Sioux tribe. And some of the Sioux were actually wearing war paint as they hunkered down in the tall grass at the base of this hill. There were also hunters and prospectors and upscale gentlemen. There was a well-known war correspondent named Richard Harding Davis among the ranks, and a famous artist named Frederick Remington. And there were all kinds of miners and tradesmen, and a famous sheriff named Bucky O'Neill, and all kinds of others. So it was a diverse group, and there were 560 men among the Rough Riders altogether. And on this morning in question, they were in a tight spot. They had orders to stay put at the base of Kettle Hill for the time being, and they did have some cover by laying down in the grass, but Spanish units at the top of the hill were still able to pick them off. This was made worse by the fact that these Rough Riders had mostly black powder spring-filled rifles. This kind of gunpowder created a sizable puff of smoke every time the gun was fired, so that revealed a shooter's position and made him an easy target for the enemy. Teddy Roosevelt was one of few who had a horse with him. It was an animal he called Little Texas, but he and his horse and all the men were forced to basically hug the ground and to just hope that an order would soon come for the Rough Riders to change positions. From reading the accounts of this battle, it's, uh, well, it's somewhat difficult to get a, a read, really, on what the overall plan was for the Americans at this phase of the conflict. But you get the feeling that there was some kind of paralysis for a little while at a high level, or, or some hesitation at least. And it left the U.S. soldiers without orders to advance. 
and unsure of what they should do and just really feeling like sitting ducks there at the base of the hill. At one point, Bucky O'Neill, that, uh, that famous sheriff, he thought he would boost the Rough Riders' morale by standing up and strolling out in front of them and just kind of casually smoking a cigarette. And one of the other soldiers warned him that a bullet was certain to kill him. And the way the history records it, O'Neill said, quote, The Spanish bullet ain't made that'll kill me. And then just as he finished the sentence, he was hit in the head and died instantly. For Theodore Roosevelt, this was too much. He was tired of being pinned down and feeling helpless against this onslaught of Spanish fire. So he was able to get a message to his superior, finally, asking for permission to lead a charge up the hill. And the second that permission was granted, he mounted Little Texas, and this made him a huge target. He was not just up from the grass, he was all the way up on horseback, giving the Spaniards a clear target. Being on horseback while all the other Rough Riders were on foot also would have made it clear to the Spanish that he was someone important, you know, an officer, someone who it would be valuable to take out if they wanted to really weaken the American forces. Roosevelt understood all of this, but he had a rare courage. He believed that the United States should be a great power, not just regionally, but globally. And he understood that this battle over San Juan Heights could play a major role toward that end. So he waved his men forward, but a lot of them initially stayed put, clinging to what little safety and cover the grass could give them. Roosevelt didn't say much, but he did pose this question to them. Are you afraid to stand up when I'm on horseback? And then from there, Roosevelt just let his actions speak. As he began advancing up the hill, Mauser bullets from the Spanish were flying at him, hitting the ground on either side, to the front, to the back, but he was undaunted. And the other Rough Riders were apparently inspired by his courage, and they began moving forward behind him. This was a diverse group of men, as I said a moment ago, from all walks of life and ethnic groups, but none of that seemed to matter. From what we can tell from the historic accounts, they were all inspired by his example and followed Roosevelt in this charge up Kettle Hill. At one point, a captain with the 3rd Cavalry, another American unit, actually blocked Roosevelt, saying that he hadn't received orders to advance. But Roosevelt was undeterred, and he continued up past the 3rd. The Rough Riders next came to the 10th Cavalry. This was a unit of African-American soldiers, sometimes called Buffalo Soldiers. Their officer, Lieutenant Jules Ord, decided that the 10th would join in the Rough Riders' charge. Ord was, to his men, very much like Roosevelt was to the Rough Riders. Ord was a seemingly fearless man who led by example. So despite those Mauser bullets raining down all around them, he grabbed his pistol in one hand and a sword in the other, and he charged up toward the top of the hill. And his men followed after him, moving up yard by yard, despite all that heavy fire coming down. Richard Harding Davis was the correspondent that I mentioned who was embedded with the Rough Riders, and he later wrote about how terrible the odds looked for the Rough Riders and the 10th Cavalry as they charged up and suffered terrible losses. He wrote, quote, One's instincts was to call them back. You felt that someone had blundered 
and that these men were blindly following some madman's mad order. And then, actually, he continues here. No one who saw Roosevelt take that ride expected him to finish it alive. End quote. Now, it is important to note that the Rough Riders and the 10th Cavalry had some crucial help from below. At the base of the hills, there was a man named John Parker who saw their ascent, and he ordered his Gatling gun crews to rake the hilltop while the Americans climbed. So these Gatling guns played a major role in suppressing Spanish activity and allowing the Rough Riders and the 10th to make this ascent. But Roosevelt kept on climbing, and his men kept on following his example, and it was the same with Ord and his Buffalo soldiers. Toward the top of the hill, Roosevelt came to a barbed wire fence that the Spanish had set up, and he started hacking through it. And as he did, a Spanish bullet hit his elbow, apparently indirectly. But either way, he kept on hacking, and he was able to get through the wire. Uh, And it looks like at this point he had to leave his horse, Little Texas, and he climbed off, and he and some of his men kept on advancing up the hill. And they were pretty much at the crest at this point, and they were exchanging close fire with the Spanish. Roosevelt thought that his small group were the first Americans at the top of Kettle Hill, but they saw that one of the Buffalo soldiers, a man named George Berry, had actually arrived just before them from another path, and he had raised the U.S. flag there. Well, other Rough Riders and soldiers from the 10th, as well as fragments from other U.S. units, continued to make their way to the top of Kettle Hill. And there was intense hand-to-hand combat between them and the Spanish troops in the trenches at the top. But the Americans overcame them. The surviving Spanish ended up retreating, and the U.S. forces at San Juan Hill were also inspired by seeing this example from Roosevelt. So following that example, these U.S. troops at the base of San Juan Hill ascended just as the others had done at Kettle Hill there, and they were soon able to take San Juan Hill as well. So America controlled the heights, and that meant they were able to force the Spanish fleet in Santiago Harbor to flee the harbor and head out to the open waters there where the U.S. Navy was waiting for them. And the U.S. Navy did end up sinking every one of those Spanish ships. And this was a decisive battle. And a few months later, the Spanish-American War officially ended. The treaty that the two sides signed established the independence of Cuba at that time, and it also stipulated that Spain had no more control over what was left of its other overseas holdings. So that was the Philippines, Guam, Puerto Rico, and some other islands. These were ceded to the U.S., and it all set America up to become the dominant global power of the 20th century. An incredible chapter of U.S. and even world history that occurred largely because of the power of example. Mr. Gerald Fleury is the presenter of the Key of David program here on KPCG, and he's also the author of many books and booklets. In one of his books, called The God Family Vision, he devotes quite a bit of attention to the topic of example and the power of leading by example. First, he mentions that Jesus Christ, during his earthly ministry, wasn't really behaving in an original way. 
He writes, quote, Christ was following his father's example, end quote. And Mr. Fleury points out that we know that partly from John 14, verse 9, which records Christ as saying, He that has seen me has seen the Father. So Christ was following an example. He was following his Father's example and following it so closely that his life provided a mirror, really, of how the Father lives. So Christ was a follower first, but then from there, he went on to lead others by example. Mr. Fleury points out that he didn't just speak, but he demonstrated the truth that he was teaching. He showed it and lived it. And Mr. Fleury discusses just how powerful that example was to Christ's disciples. He writes, quote, Christ didn't just parrot empty, syrupy words about loving God. Instead, he was a doer. You know, we went through the story at the beginning of the episode about Fred Rogers drying the feet of Clemens and just talked about how powerful that example was without any words, just by showing, you know, showing an attitude of humility and respect for that man. And really that calls to mind in some ways what the Gospel of John writes about in chapter 13. Verses 4 through 5 say Jesus Christ washed and dried the feet of his disciples. And then after he did that, Christ explained that they should follow his example. In verse 15, he says, quote, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And there's a literal application to that, but this also goes beyond just washing someone's feet in a literal way. It's really about having that attitude of serving and humility and, and love, really, toward others in every way. And then in Matthew, Jesus is again speaking to his disciples. This is in uh, chapter 5, and he says these famous words, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So that's about being a visible example. The emphasis is on doing, on showing. And it's all sort of linear here, with Christ first following his Father's example, And then in so doing, he was setting an example for his followers, and then they are to in turn follow his example. And then their example can inspire others to follow the same way, and then it just kind of keeps on radiating out to more and more people. And here's what Mr. Fleury writes about this. He writes, quote, Your example can be a wonderful light and have a dramatic impact on that other person's life. So he's writing there specifically about a person's spouse, but there is a general principle as well that can, you know, uh, apply more broadly. And it gives us all a great deal to think about. And if you don't have a copy of this free book, The God Family Vision, please go to thetrumpet.com and you can easily order one there uh, for no charge, no follow-up, no obligation of any kind, or you can also go to the show notes for today's episode of The Sun Also Rises on SoundCloud or on kpcg.fm, and there will be a link there to place an order for that book as well. Well, we'll leave it there for today, but we really appreciate you tuning in to The Sun Also Rises. And if you have any questions or comments, please send those to tsar at kpcg.com. And we'll leave today with this quote from Francis Bacon. He that gives good advice builds with one hand. 
He that gives good counsel and example builds with both. But he that gives good admonition and bad example builds with one hand and pulls down with the other. (laughs) 